Thank you, ladies. Good morning, church. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? I'm glad to be here, too. I saw all the backs of your heads last week, and uh, thank you to the guys in the sound booth and setting up the live stream. That's a blessing when you're not feeling well or you're on vacation. Um, I tried putting my offering by putting the check up to the laptop screen, but it, I must have the wrong operating system. Okay, just a few announcements. Um, if you've never been to Catherine's Open House, you are missing something incredible. Now, the food is a little iffy, but the fellowship is great. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Baklava, you cannot have Christmas without that. Um, but please, please show up and just see the Laytons and their wonderful hospitality and see brothers and sisters. Sunday school will be on the 24th, so moms and dads, we're having regular service then. And I'd encourage you to come back for the evening candlelight service. It's more than just dripping wax on the pews. It's a special time of family. Um, and it, it, to me, it's just, that's my favorite time of year. Silent Night is one of my favorite songs. And just to, I don't sing it. Because I, I don't want to disturb other people's Christmas, but just to look around and watch everybody holding candles is, brings tears to my eyes. And the last announcement before Isaac comes up is we have youth choir practice today, and I think all the kids are going to be there, the little ones and the big ones. So that's over in the other building. Isaac. Good morning. Just uh, a quick uh, reminder on the uh, True Church Conference, which will be in February. It is a four-day event. It's Thursday through Sunday. We typically would take a group on Friday and Saturday. Uh, if you have any interest at all in attending, please just come see me um, uh, in person if you can. Uh, obviously, I'll be um, hanging out here uh, after the service because I've got the choir practice. So you can meet with me today or send me an email. Let me know if you have any questions. If you already know that if you're planning to attend, please let me know that as well. I'm trying to get together a good head count by the end of the year so we can look at uh, scheduling a hotel and, and seeing about travel and registration and things like that. Uh, it's a great opportunity to go and meet face-to-face uh, -face in person with the, uh, the pastors and missionaries that are around the country and the world that we support and pray for, uh, as well as... Um, it's a three-hour drive with, uh, with the folks that we go with from here, uh, so you get a chance to fellowship and, and chat and get to know each other better. So uh, it, it's a great time. We do this every year in February. So if you are interested, please let me know. And if you have questions, just come find me. I will be around. Thank you. Man, thank you, Isaac. And, uh, yeah, be sure to ask Isaac about it. It's a great opportunity. Also, just to remind you, we normally take a special Christmas offering for missions that goes really beyond our budget. And I really appreciate your giving towards that. Uh, you have um, really given uh, in great abundance through the years and appreciate that. You can uh, designate really at any time this month missions, uh, just write AIT or just missions if you will, 
and you can just give in your normal giving. But we'll take a special offering on uh, the Sunday the 24th uh, that unless otherwise designated, all of that will go to missions. And Andy, by the way, we, we do have a website in which you could click the word give. And, uh, <clears throat> and we do have an online uh, method of giving. If you use that method, by the way, uh, which I've been experimenting with, uh, you, you just designate, there's a place for you to write uh, how you want the offering to, to be received, either general or you can put missions on there if you want to give towards missions. So just keep that in mind. Today, we're going to continue in our second Advent presentation. I have uh, Jess and Brant to come forward. Last week, we're using this as an object lesson, more or less. And last week, we talked about Jesus Christ being the light of the world. And today, we have another presentation, which Jesse and uh, Brant will do for us today. And you'll want to have your worship folder. To, there's a places for you to speak during when it indicates congregation. So that's in the front of your worship folder. So if you guys will go ahead and do this presentation today. I light this candle to remind us of God's promise to send the one who is the Son of God. God spoke to people many times and in many ways by his prophets, and so people learned many things about God. But the prophets told of God's promise. Someday, God would send his own Son to people, the very image of God. The prophet Isaiah said, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who is this Son of God? The angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Let us prepare our hearts now to worship this Son of God, Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a private moment to prepare your heart, confess your sin, ask to, for the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart, that you might hear and heed the words of Christ. I'll give you a private moment right now, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you in great praise, praise for who you are and all that you have done, and particularly being mindful of us. What is man that you're mindful of him? You're a good and gracious and glorious God. And we come to praise your name. This season, which we think in particular of sending the Son to live among us, to fulfill all righteousness, to take on our sin, to die for those transgressions, to rise again triumphantly, to ascend on high, and to rule and reign even now 
in your kingdom. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to think about the reality of who we are now in Christ, sons and daughters of God. Not because we merited or privileged anything, but because you graciously granted us that privilege. I pray that we would live in ways that reflect that communion now that we have with you. We worship in Christ this season. I pray that we would teach our sons and daughters and others, people that we come into contact with, how wonderful Christ indeed is. A wonderful counselor, one with great wisdom, truly powerful and a mighty God, a mighty God to save sinners, to change the very heart of man, to give us a disposition to love and cherish and praise you. Indeed, to to lead us as a father would lead his children, to lead us in paths of righteousness, and ultimately, the Prince of Peace. And we do pray for that peace would come, not only just in Israel and other lands that might be war-torn, but really across the earth. We know that you have promised this. We know that you will indeed fulfill it. I pray that we would be patient and waiting for the triumph of Christ and his soon return. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. You can see in your bulletins that our focus this morning is on joy. And uh, the definition of biblical joy is the sense or state of gladness or elation that people experience through their relationship with God. Joy marks the people of God both individually and corporately. In Romans 14, 17, Paul tells the Roman believers that the kingdom of God is marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in or by the Holy Spirit. And he also tells the believers in Corinth that I am being supplied lavishly with joy in all our affliction. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit and should be evident in the Christian community. So let's all stand together and take our hymn books and let's sing for joy this morning. Let's rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. Let's turn to number 13 in our hymn books and sing joyful, joyful, we adore thee.
202. 202. Luke 2.20 says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. How great our joy. 202. to number 181 and look at joy to the world you know Isaac Watts in 1719 did not intend this to be a Christmas hymn uh, it's a meditation on Psalm 98 and the second coming of Christ Um, and when you and you can see that in verses two and three when we sing those two verses and when you sing repeat the sounding joy that actually means we are joining with all of heaven and all of creation and declaring the divinity of Christ and celebrating the wonder of salvation. And so let's, as we sing this song, sing it with a sense of hope and anticipation uh, on the reign and kingdom of Christ to come. And so 181, joy to the world, the Lord is come.
Good morning, church. Uh, I would like you to turn to Luke chapter 2. In the Pew Bible, that's page 855. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 5. After the end of the Old Testament and 400 years of silence, Luke tells us the greatest story ever told. It's a story of God's plan to save sinners from eternal hell through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die and rise again from the dead. The story's true. It's actual history, and it's without equal in its impact and its power. Let's read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by God to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there, appear, there, appeared, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to burn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And as I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these words take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach um, among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God 
to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will, <coughs> the Lord God will give to him <coughs> excuse me, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tremendous portion of Scripture. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sweet submissive testimony of this young girl, Mary, who was so mightily used to carry the Savior of the world in her womb. Thank you that your promises are fulfilled. The story is so clear. This amazing child is the Son of God, the Son of Man, our sinless Sovereign and our glorious Savior. May we adore you and worship you as our Savior and our Lord. Father, as Mary brought forth the child, may we bring forth the glorious gospel to the lost and bring light and life into this dark world. Please bless this offering to that end. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.
Let's stand once more and take our hymn books and turn to number 186. 186, Joy Has Dawned. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. <laughs> in church for singing today about the glory of Christ. I suppose we do that all the time here, but there's something unique about these songs at Christmas that speak of Christ taking on human flesh, living among us. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 9, and I invite you to turn there, and we'll look at verse 15, and probably get through 16 and 17, and we'll pick up the rest next time. God keeps his promises. 
During our life, we make a lot of promises. And I suppose we intend to keep them. We intend to keep them all, or otherwise we wouldn't make them. But we also recognize that, well, we don't always have the ability to do so, even if we intend well. I mean, we might forget what we said. We might be busy, distracted. Some unexpected thing might happen that would curtail our plans. But that's not the way with God. God keeps all of his promises. He has to, otherwise he wouldn't be God. He would be a liar. He would say something that isn't true. And God cannot lie. In addition, God is actually able to keep all of his promises. Because God ordains whatever comes to pass. He's in control of it all. And unlike us, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And he's always present. He ordains whatever comes to pass, we would say, in short. Scripture addresses this in a number of places. For example, Job 42.2. Job comes to the recognition, even in his life and what he went through. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a good thing to know. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, "My this is God, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's unique. God can do that. Daniel puts it this way in 4.35, all inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The psalmist put it this way in 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It isn't just that God can do what he wants. He will do. He will do what he pleases. And for those who are his, the redeemed, he will even purpose evil for good. Romans 8, 28, you're familiar. We know that for those who God loves, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his Purpose Again, his purpose. Now, we have come to a section now in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, that if you read through it, it can be a little confusing. I, actually, as I thought through this, I would shorten up our reading today from Hebrews, so not to confuse you too much, because it is a bit complicated to some degree. And if you're reading along with us at this point, you might think that the preacher is simply repeating himself to some degree, which probably is true. We want to reemphasize some things. That's a good thing. But now in our section, as you'll note, and as I'm going to point out, he's been talking about a covenant in contrast, the new covenant in contrast with the old. The old he's referring to is the Mosaic covenant or 
promise. You see the word covenant, think promise. But in our text that we'll look at this morning, he also interposes really a different idea, an idea of a will. So what's going on? And how does any of this affect us? How does this affect us now, today? And understanding this covenant will aspect. I'll put it this way. In the very beginning, in Genesis, as you read, God did make a promise. He made a promise to Adam. Adam, who was in the garden and was given the fullness of all that God had except one thing. Remember Genesis 2.17? God said, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. When you think about it, that's a promise. You eat it, you're going to die. A promise is really a declaration of what will be done. And we've already established God fulfills all that he says. He keeps all of his promises and even this one. And if you know the rest of the story, if you've read the first few chapters of Genesis, did Adam die that day? He says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, we will grant that, yes, he died in a spiritual way for sure. But how about physically? It seems by implication that it would be a physical death. Why not physically, actually? Well, there was a death in the garden. Do you remember? 321 in Genesis, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Garments of skin. Somebody else's skin was on the line. And there, right in the beginning, he demonstrates that he keeps his promise. A death does occur. It's death by a substitute. He is foreshadowing how this promise, you will surely die, will be kept. The wages of sin is is death. And God promises that that will be kept. He explains in the curse on Satan in Genesis 3.15... He says, I'm going to break this bond of slavery that you now have with mankind. I will put enmity, is how it's expressed, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is pointing to a seed, the seed of the woman, as we've already read from her passage in Luke. A virgin would bear a child, and that child would come, and he would crush the head of Satan, that is, destroy him. He will do it through his own death, the bruising of the heel. That's a promise, too. It's a promise to destroy the destroyer, if you will. That promise will be kept by that one who would come, the Messiah, the Deliverer. That's what his name means, Jesus Christ. It's a promise that the wages of sin, that is death, will be paid. And God 
explains that this will be done through a mediator between God and man. That mediation must occur, by the way, not just for us now, today, which is certainly applicable, but back to Adam. And in context here in Hebrews, he's making the point, referencing all of those under the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, this congregation that he had, they thought about picking back up the rituals of Judaism and exposed to the reality that is in Jesus Christ. And he is going on and will explain that those, de- that those deaths that occurred year after year only foreshadowed what would truly take away sin, the Son of God. Paul put it this way then in 2 Corinthians 1.20, and it's worth thinking about and meditating on, that all of the, and here's the word, promises of God find their yes in Him. They're answered in Christ. God makes a lot of promises And he will keep them all through Jesus Christ. Paul will go on and say that is why it is through him that we utter our amen for God, to God for his glory. Amen. All right, let's look at the text then. And again, to just keep you focused on this concept of God's promises kept, I'm just going to look at the first few verses of our section of Scripture beginning at verse 15. And it does begin with this, therefore. It is speaking of Christ, but I want you to focus just on this section here. Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you give us insight into your word. We want to rightly handle it. We want to rightly understand it. And we want the Holy Spirit to work in our heart to bring to faith and faithfulness your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, look at the text here with me, and we'll look at a few others. You might want to get a Bible if you didn't bring one. There's one in the pew for you. Hebrews 9, 15, it it begins with a therefore, which is a summary statement that introduces a conclusion. The conclusion is that Christ, as we've been talking about, is indeed that one who is a mediator, a a mediator between God and man, this, this one, Christ Jesus. He's a mediator of what? The, the new covenant. The, and, and a good way to think about a covenant is a promise. He's a mediator of a new promise in contrast with that one which is old. It's old by the second one coming and superseding it in this case. 
The Mosaic Covenant, often too referred here as the first covenant, it's not the first in order, it's the one that is immediately addressed to these particular people. Christ is the mediator then of a, of a new covenant, a covenant which is better. And here you can turn back one chapter and go to chapter 8 just to refresh your memory. And look at it because I'm going to make a point out of here that's necessary. In chapter 8, in verse 6, 8, 6 of Hebrews, But it is as Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And he's unfolded what some of those better promises are. Remember, he's contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And now in verse 7, he's going to call it the first covenant. That's just the one that he's speaking of. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. They're a divided kingdom, and he's, this promises to them. This is looking back in the prophecy and promise given by Jeremiah, for example, of that very covenant. What is that covenant? Verse 9, was well, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant that was instituted at that time. <coughs> it's not like that. That is the new covenant. It's not like that. Why? For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It was a conditional covenant made on obedience. A lot of laws, and, and the Jews recognize this as approximately, they'll, they'll say definitively, actually, 613 laws. Well, they broke them. They didn't continue. So they, they, they weren't to be blessed, because it was conditional. But this is the covenant that I will make, that is a future, a, a promise. I'm going to do this. I will make a covenant with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And what is it? I will put the laws into their minds. Instead of tablets of stone, instead of written down, he's going to do something radically different. You get it? He's going to change the heart. He's going to put a disposition to want to obey God from the very heart. I'll put it in their minds. It isn't an external conformity. It's an internal. I will write them on their hearts. I will then be their God and they shall be my people. This is what we call an unconditional covenant. God says, I'm going to do this. Now, how do we begin? God keeps his promises. He will do it. Whether you understand it or not, it doesn't really matter. God says he's going to do it. He's God. He can't lie. He says, I'm going to do it. And he explains it. In fact, they're not going to even have to teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. That is a personal relationship with God to the house of Israel and Judah. Why? Because they are all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest. This isn't that they're going to know me intellectually, informationally, which all of us do. They're going to know me personally. There's going to be something changed about their heart, something that they couldn't do, something by which conformity to that 
set of rules would never accomplish. God would supernaturally do something. And by the way, we've already read in our text of this Christmas season, God does miracles, doesn't he? Did you enjoy reading about the miracles? The miracle of John the Baptist's birth, that's a miracle. The birth of Christ, that's a miracle. Well, God has the power to do it. And God has the power to save. And here's the text uh, that i am get to in, in some point, but I do want you to keep this in mind here. Verse 12. So, he, so he's going to redeem them, but <clears throat> notice this. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will rem- remember their sins no more. That's another promise. We're going to look at how he keeps it, because he does promise that he'll do that. This better promise given here is the fact that God will do all of this. God will do it alone. It doesn't depend on anyone else. It's an unconditional covenant. And the role of the recipients of this covenant is simply, it is a promise that is simply received by faith. Look at who the recipients are in particular. And again, his immediate context is these people here. And it's certainly applicable to all to which this might apply. All of God's people. Verse 15. Who gets this promise? Those who are called. That's who gets it. In the immediate context, he's talking about who? Those that lived under this first covenant. Because he's going to have to do something. And who is going to get it? Who's going to receive it? Those here who lived under this first covenant. It is applicable to all in their position. But it's immediately mentioned towards them. So verse 15, what what are they going to get? They're going to get something that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Did did you see the connection in verse 12 of chapter 8? He says he's going to do it. And here these recipients get this. This first covenant refers to, as I mentioned, the former covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It is something that cannot accomplish this removal of iniquity, this removal of transgressions to the point where God doesn't remember. And when we talk about remembering, he's not saying that, that he's all-knowing. He would certainly know about it. Remember means he, do, he chooses not to impute it against. That is, think of it this way, he chooses not to hold it against. He chooses then not to count it, if you will. And there's a reason why, which, we'll, which you know and we'll unpack in just a bit. But look in chapter 9, then just a few verses prior. We've been through this, and the picture of this tabernacle that's mentioned here, verse (coughs) 9, which is symbolic for now, he said, the present age. According to his arrangements, I'm in Hebrews 9, 9, gifts, sacrifices, these are all offered that, what? And here's the word, cannot perfect the consciousness of the, the conscious of the worshiper. 
all of those rituals, all of those sacrifices, all that was done and commanded to be done were merely symbolic. Foreshadowed is another way to think about it. They couldn't take care of it in reality. He's addressing here specifically in this context all of those who had previously lived under the law that had their uh, sacrifices uh, performed and they were under that covenant, but yet that covenant wasn't a perfecting covenant. And we know it's not a perfecting covenant because they had to do sacrifices year after year after year after year. Nothing was washed away. The transgressions were still there. It only symbolized and typified what would happen. Yet, these people, the recipients, are called, it says. This call refers to what theologians might express as a, an effectual call of God. That is God's voice to the sinner who says, hear what I have to say. Where God supernaturally grants the ability to hear. God grants the ability to see. God grants the ability to have a new set of affections. Beloved, this is not something that I can accomplish. God has simply called us to preach Christ. Christ is a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, truly a prince of peace. But I can't get you to see the significance of that. That will be a work of God to where you revel in it and it becomes a reality to you and changes really the trajectory of your life. I wish I could. I don't have it. But God can. And he has chosen and ordained the means by which that would be communicated simply by the proclamation of Christ. I think part of the reason is, so we can't take credit for it. We don't take any credit for giving you something that's going to make you righteous and holy. Some little act or some activity or some even catchphrase word. Sometimes it's some of the dumbest things people might say. The most simplest things. Even a stumbling word. God can use because faith comes by hearing and hearing about the words of Christ. This call, those who hear his voice, hear it in a redemptive way. And God calls sinners then redemptively to make them saints. Again, this isn't a work of the flesh. This is a work of the spirit to, to really dynamically change somebody's total trajectory of life. The preacher addressed, addressed his audience as brothers, that unique eternal relationship of family. In 3.1, I'll read it for you. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, that's how he describes Christians. That's how he describes those who are in Christ. One, here is this communion that we have with one another, a unique communion that reaches beyond ethnicity, that reaches beyond our um, 
our income level, or our status in life. None of that matters. Male, female, Greek, Jew, doesn't matter. We're one in Christ, and they're a communion of holy brothers. Holy just means set apart, sanctified, made righteous, a unique position in which we are, holy in that we're set apart from God, both positionally, for sure, declared righteous because uh, we know the righteousness of Christ, that's, that's who, all who are in Christ, but also practically, because it, it, it affects our behavior. It, we, we've been given a new disposition that inside there's something internal that makes us want to follow God and to be obedient to Him. Well, I'm not suggesting we carry that out in perfection. Not at all. But that's the trajectory and the direction of our life. That's one way you can examine your own heart. And I ask people to do that because this confession is not just something external. It's something internal. So examine your own heart and see that disposition. I mean, is there a disposition to call you on a daily basis to confess your sin? And look to Christ, who is that faithful one who indeed will forgive the new disposition is a desire he will explain when we get to Hebrews chapter 11 in a couple of years. Um, <laughs> I will get there eventually. Eleven sixteen. They desire, listen to that, just listen to me. They, you know, it's, a, it's, the, it's, the, it's the chapter of faith and faithful people. They, here's how he describes those people. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, that's an amazing fact for me. I will get into that later, that God isn't ashamed to be their God. I give him a lot of things to be ashamed of. But that's the disposition, and they recognize their union with Christ. He's prepared for us a better city. This idea of, of, of brothers, that they are not only set apart to God, but also in fellowship with one another, a unique bond a true band of brothers that is deeper than any other relationship that you might have. Christ would say to all that he sanctified and set apart, chapter 2 of Hebrews and verse 11, that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know why? He, he has positionally made them all that are in Christ, that one source, righteous and he will fulfill his promise. <laughs> you will be in the perfection that is in Christ. So these are those who are then called, made holy, brought into fellowship with God, brought into a familiar fellowship with one another, saints who share in this very heavenly calling, summoned by God. Let me, let me just give you a text to, to just consider as it's expressed in a, more, uh, uh, in, a, in a greater way, if you will, as Paul deals with in Romans 8. You can turn there if you wish. Romans 8 and towards the end, 28, we'll pick up there. I've already mentioned that verse, and you're familiar with it, but just look at it in light of this context. And the idea of being called... 
What does that mean? This is the call by God, where God says, come here. Where God says things like, Lazarus, come forth. That's what we mean by effectual. Live. And Christ would say, what, what is easier for me to say, get up and walk, or for your sins to be forgiven? But that you might know that Christ has the power. He says, get up and walk to somebody who has been lame for years and years and, and bones brittle and muscles atrophied, and he can stand up and walk and not just walk but carry something? That's easy. Forgiving sin, that's hard. That's his point. But he does that, and he shows you he has the power to do it through what he calls forth, because when God calls, he doesn't get a busy signal. <laughs> when God calls, he is not ignored in this type of a call. We're not talking about just a general call in which God calls all men to repent and believe, or God calls all men to worship him, as Psalm 100 says. Sure, we, we call the world to thank God, to praise him. But no, this is talking more specifically, targeted, where he calls people to life. And see how Paul e expresses this. We call this the, the golden chain of redemption. You know why? This is God's will being worked out. And I know it might be hard to understand, but from God's perspective, he explains it really clear here. And he says, and our familiar passage 28 of Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for God, for good. Those who love God, by the way, well, if you read it in context of, of this passage and the Bible, why do you love God? Because he loved you, that's why. In other words, God grants his love to you. He changes the disposition of your heart. You wouldn't love God without God putting that in there. That's the point. For those people, that works out for good. So all of life, what happens in your life, you can know because God has a purpose for it, even that which is evil, even that which is wicked. It isn't going to destroy you. Like Joseph would say in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil when, the, when his brothers sold him into slavery and all the things that happened to him in his life. But he told his brothers at the very end when he could have had retribution on them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He knew it. And that's the truth expressed right here. For those who are, look at verse 28, for those who are, here's the word, do you hear it? Called. Those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. And then he explains how that works out. For whom he foreknew, he predestined. Foreknew is foreloved. It isn't just that God knew. Of course God knows. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But he's talking about a specific people, those who he called. He foreknew them in that, you know what he says? They will know me. They'll be, I'll, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. That's the idea of foreknowledge here. It, it, it is a, a connection where you really know God. God foreordained it there. He, he knew in the sense that he granted that connection. He displayed his love. He 
Predestined, that word just simply means predetermined ahead of time. Of course, he'd have to. Otherwise, it wouldn't work out. God orchestrates all things under his providence to bring it about, even wicked things. The reason I came to Christ, I'll just give you a little quick anecdote. You know the reason I came to Christ? Because my, my, my father had a second failed marriage. I was a teenage boy living with him, just me and him, and this woman who was the love of his life, who, who um, dumped him for lying on him and, and took off. And he knocked me out cold. And then he got his senses together the next day and said, well, why don't we go to church? And I went to church. And I heard the gospel. That was an awful, wicked time in our life. And by the way, he heard the gospel too. And it changed the trajectory of both of our lives, not knowing, because he was still a pretty selfish guy at the time. I was just a teenage boy. That's the first time I ever heard something about, oh, you're a sinner, and Christ can save you. Your um, due judgment, condemnation. And that made sense to me. I knew I was a sinner. I didn't even think about everybody else. I was just thinking about me. And then it said I could be saved from my sin, confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, I didn't know what all that meant, but, 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 but it sounded good to me. A very wicked time in my life. You know why? God orchestrated all of that to bring me to faith. All that evil of my childhood up to that very day. And everything changed, and I would never change it for the world. God knows what he's doing. And I don't know why all these things work out, but you could be assured of this, that God has ordered all things together. You know why you're here? Here in the gospel? God wants you to hear it. That's what all I can say. You know why all this stuff's happening in your life? God has a purpose for it. If you're outside of Christ, come to him now. That's the purpose. If you're in Christ, grow in faith and trust and believe him. God is not a liar. He works all things together for the good of those that are in Christ, ultimately for his glory, so we can praise his holy name for it. According to his purpose, he said. And what is his purpose here? Do you see that in the text? He says, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is going to happen. That is part of our life in this world right now. We are continually being conformed unto the image of his son. We will never achieve that in perfection. But I can tell you what. what? If, if I wasn't redeemed by Christ, if I didn't grow in Christ, I would either be dead or in jail like my brothers. And God plucked me out of that sea of filthiness and change, totally radically change the whole direction of my life. That's my anecdote. When I see that, I'm sorry, I can't help but say it. You have an anecdote too, don't you? Yeah. Something radically changed. If it didn't, it needs to. Even these young kids in a Christian family, when we get to baptize them back here and I hear their testimony, I always wonder, do they really know they're a sinner? And to hear them give us testimony and say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, Oh, they might not have done the kinds of things you or I might have done, and praise the Lord that they're sheltered from it. I was sheltered from a lot just by God's providence. I can't believe I didn't get into some of the trouble that my siblings did. 
But you know what another thing they recognize? That if you don't glorify God in all you do, then you're falling short of his glory and you need salvation. Come to Christ. Those are some of the most beautiful testimonies by children that are raised up in godly homes and their parents teach them. And I hope you do as well. I'm sorry I get off track. Romans 8, wherever I'm at, 29, is to be conformed to the image of the Son. And by the way, that will happen in perfection in our state before Him, in a glorified state, in order that, we, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here's where Christ is not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed. You're, you're going to be perfect. You know how you're going to be made perfect? Because I'm going to do it. Okay? There will be a day, and in this life, every time you, you demonstrate Christ in your life, and they see Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's a glimpse of it. And, and, and I hope you get greater glimpses, and other people might say it, in, in how you respond and act in life when you begin to act like Christ from the Spirit and not from the flesh. And those whom he predestined, he also called, here's that word again, so God knows ahead of time. He predetermines ahead of time. And then what does he do? Hey, you! That's the call. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. It's not just affirming some facts about Christianity. It's about a change of a heart. And now what do you want to do? You have a disposition to follow Christ. And the reason you may not is because, one, is you may not know Christ. That's a possibility. Or you can be so distracted by other things. That's why you need to hear Christ. That's why you need to be around Christ's people. That's why you need to expose yourself to the truth privately in his word as you read and pray and be around others that can encourage you as well. He calls. So, so who are the ones that he knew ahead of time? He planned it out, and then, then he calls them. At, that is at a point in time. Mine when I, I was a teenager, I heard his voice. He called. Well, those he called, he also does what? Justify. That means declared righteous. I'm not righteous. Christ is righteous. And that's how he can make that declaration, but he's already made it. And those that he has declared righteous, that is justified, also glorified. Glorified is the eternal state. The final end is a glorified body. See 1 Corinthians 15. That, that's where it's all going. And so the status then of those that are called, he'll say, in, and I'll have to move on here, otherwise I'll be preaching through the book of Romans, which <coughs> I might get to at some point. But look at verse 33. Then he says, well, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God, the called and the elect are one and the same. That's God picking them out. He picks them out ahead of time, and he says, I want you, not because of who you are, because of who I am, and I'll take you. And he's taking some of the worst people I know because I'm one of them. The recipients of the promise, then, are those that are called by God. So what does he promise? Back to Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 15. See the next phrase? Eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance. Think about the word inheritance now. And that's the way it's described here because he's going to 
this will make greater sense in just a bit. We, we understand the idea of inheritance. For them, the Jews, they thought in terms of rest in God, uh, a Sabbath rest, that is, can you imagine the Garden of Eden, a return to that, what it would be like, a rest would be truly fruitful, without sin, a perfect place, that's the imagery of rest. He warns, if, and I'll just run through this quickly, he warns in chapter 3, remember, he if, if you neglect the salvation, they shall not enter my rest. A rest still stands, chapter 4. So let us fear, lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it, to be diligent. Chapter 4, verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In six twelve, another warning. Don't be sluggish, but instead... Imitators of those who through faith, that's how it's received, through faith and patience, inherit then the promises. What's the promise? Eternal inheritance. You want to see what it looks like? He he doesn't unpack it here. They kind of have an idea of it. This is part of the religious system. This is what the Sabbath pointed to, a Sabbath rest in God. Peter describes it, and I think it would be helpful to see his unpacking of it. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, if you want to see it, I'll read it for you. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. By the way, doesn't that fit with this whole idea of foreknowing, predetermining, and calling? He caused us to be born again. You, you can't be born physically on your own. You can't be born spiritually on your own. There are some things that mediate all of that, but ultimately, I just thought of it. Because of it. They, they go on with life begins at conception. Life begins with God. <laughs> That's where life comes from, whether it's physical or eternal. It's God. Sorry for the distraction. He has caused us to be born again, and born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what, what's that living hope? What, what do we look for? Here it is, verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable. That's what I'm talking about. This inheritance, this promised eternal inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What if you don't get it? who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the ultimate end of salvation. That ties into that golden chain we're talking about from the very beginning to the very end. It ends in perfection, in glorification, and this eternal inheritance. Did you, did you see what this inheritance is described here in four different terms? It's imperishable. It can't be destroyed. Go, go work all you want for something. And even if you get an inheritance, it could be destroyed. This is imperishable. It, it says it's undefiled. That is, it can't be polluted by sin. Everything we have breaks down and falls apart, doesn't it? This will not. 
This inheritance will not. It is not. It is unfading, he says. That is, it doesn't decay or diminish in any way. It isn't any less. It, it isn't like it has to be, by the way, divided up and everybody gets a little slice of the pie. No, you get the whole pie. That's what you get. All that is in Christ. And what if you lose it and, you, and something happens? You can't. It's kept in heaven. That is, it is secured by the Holy Spirit. No wonder Christ would tell his disciples in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, what are those treasures? Moth comes through, moths come through, rust destroys, thieves come through and break in and steal. Instead, lay up your treasures in heaven. Put that priority there where neither moth or rust destroys, where thieves don't break through and and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And so all we're trying to do is drive you, like this preacher is, to focus on this eternal inheritance that is promised to all that God would call. Wow, the riches of God in Christ Jesus. It's guarded. This promise is kept. That's how we started. And that's where we'll look at this connection between the will, which that can confuse a lot of people when we're sorting through this section of Hebrews. I know some of it is a little hard to follow. I'll try to make it as simple as I could. Let's look back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. See the phrase there that says, death has occurred, that redeems him. And then look at verse 16, the next one. Then it talks about a will, at least in my English translation. Now, you, you may have a different translation. That's fine. I'm going to stay with this. I'll tell you the Greek word in a minute. But at least mine, the ESV, the one we're using, for where there's a will involved, then he talks about there's a death that has to be made. And then verse 17, a will takes effect only a death. Now, you may have testament or covenant there. That's fine. But, but nevertheless, he's talking about it only takes effect at death, whatever's said there. My translation says will, which is which is a good translation, because it connects this word death. It's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And I admit, that can be a little difficult. You're going to have to think on this and what's going on. The word covenant in my ESV, in verse 15, is twice there, is the word diatheke in Greek. The word will, translated in verse 16 and 17, is the same word. So what's going on there? Why don't they make it all the same? Normally, diatheke in Greek is translated covenant. But I think the translators, uh, the English version, did a good job in trying to help communicate something. Because in context here, when, when he's talking about this death involved and it doesn't take effect until a death, he's really, you know, words have ranges of meaning. And one of the ranges is a will. Like we would think of uh, someone is... Uh, writes out a will and lists you in that will. Right? That, that is what is being communicated here. So the word does share that range of meaning, and it, and it can mean uh, both, and it is intended to do both, and I think they did a good job here on that. Almost looks like a change of thought, though, doesn't it? He's talking about a covenant, He's been talking about Christ being the mediator of a covenant. So what's this deal 
with the will and requiring the death of somebody for the will. And it only takes effect, verse 17, at death. Hmm. A covenant is a promise, as we started, right? That's what a covenant is. It's a promise. But a covenant doesn't require a death. I mean, you, you may uh, make a covenant in blood in that regard, but the people involved, it doesn't necessarily. We, we've already talked about it, an unconditional covenant. Doesn't necessarily require that. Abrahamic covenant doesn't. God says, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you people. And all nations will be blessed in you. We, we know how we receive the promises of that. It is through Christ. It is through that seed of Israel. The Davidic covenant doesn't require a death at all. It talks about God saying, I'm going to put somebody on my throne forever and ever from the house of David. Noahic covenant didn't either. It just says, God just said, remember, God said, I'm going to not drown you like a bunch of rats like you deserve. And because you might be fearful in life. I don't know why he did it other than to show his glory. I'm just uh, taking a little liberty there, but you get the point. He just says, I'm going to hang a rainbow in the sky. And every time you see a rainbow, you can think about God's promises to what? Not destroy the world by flood. So, so, so why is this death there mentioned? Why is that required? if you will, in verse 15. It says, A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed. And we've already mentioned the Mosaic Covenant condemned men to death. The death penalty was due. Christ provides that death or that redemption and that redemption, by the way, is necessary. That aspect of it is necessary to fulfill God's unconditional covenant, the new covenant. God already said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But how will he do that? If you still have your, uh, next, the previous chapter, chapter 8, it's easy to get to. Remember the covenant that he made with them? He said, um, I'm going to do this new covenant where I'm going to change your heart. Chapter 8, verse 10, we've already read it. I'm going to put my laws in their heart and their minds. They're going to be my God, and I'm going to be their God, and they'll be my people. But look what he's saying in this covenant one more time in verse 12. This promise of the new covenant, he promises to do something actually very radical. He says, I'm going to be merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more. How is he going to do that? God promises then to be merciful to his people. That's included in the covenant. And it will happen. That's why it's uh, an unconditional promise, he does say that, and he says, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to count their sins against them anymore. Within this new covenant, there is a promise that the guilt of sin is going to be done away with. And the only way the guilt, that, that is the, the, the true 
uh, culpability for that sin could be done away with is for an actual death to occur. It has to be done in reality for this covenant to be fulfilled. And that aspect, the taking away the transgressions, that's a promise like a will. That's, I think that's what he's getting to. Now, now do you see that back in Hebrews 9 where, where he talks there's a will involved? What's the will? It's kind of a promise that I'm going to do this. I'm going to remove sin. It was implied from the very beginning in the garden, as we talked about, it was implied and foreshadowed in all of this Levitical system. But now, here is it fulfilled in actuality, like a will then being activated. It's always been part of the promise. That aspect of the covenant appears like a will, a promise to be done that hasn't been done, but has to be actuated. That aspect has to be done. Here's my illustration, and it's not perfect, so forgive me ahead of time. But it's just helped me to think about it. Maybe it helps you, maybe not. Remember, illustration is just that. It, it doesn't mean to communicate it precisely, but think of this. You have a will where somebody promises you in their will, they're very wealthy, they're going to give you everything. Okay? You're going to inherit it. But they're not dead yet. So it's a promise that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And now you find yourself in trouble with the law, and now you're in prison for life. So now what happens? You have no way to receive that promise of eternal inheritance. Really, I mean, you get all the benefits. They're all there. It's written as a promise but you have no way to get it because you're in bondage. You're in prison, and they just don't give you everything in prison. They take everything away from you. They confine you. So here, for this to be realized, two things must occur. You have to be freed from prison. That has to happen. And for that to happen, that's the second thing. The person that bequeathed it to begin with, he has to die. For you to get that promise. Both elements are accomplished in the death of Christ. The recipients of the promise of the new covenant are freed by the condemnation and given an eternal inheritance. And that is realized, beloved, and I think that's why he's putting this out here. That is realized right now. You have received the eternal redemption of verse 12 and you receive eternal inheritance, verse 15. You see it? There's an eternal redemption that is secured, verse 12 of chapter 9, and then an eternal inheritance that is received. You get both. You get redeemed, and you get the benefits, the eternal inheritance. I'm about out of time, but I'll try to squeeze this in if you can hold just for another couple of minutes. Your dinner will wait, maybe. Or you could just leave. You may sense the forgiveness that God has provided for you in the death of Christ, but I think many don't live with the sense that there, 
of their internal of their internal inheritance. The terms of the will have been activated in the death of Christ. And all that remains is going to court to receive your inheritance. Christ has already died. Not only is the redemption secure, but the inheritance is. But like in a will, you got to journey down to the court and go get those things, paperwork done. I think that's the imagery, and I, I'm not going to go into detail, but you can look into it from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, but I'll just summarize it with the time that I remain. For the Christian, that same imagery occurs. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And why do we go to court to see the judge Christ? That, may we, that we may receive what is due in the body. Christ has changed the heart. And 1 Corinthians 3 talks about those things in our life and compares them to wood, hay, and stubble and those things which are precious stones, silver, and gold. Those works that are performed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life will endure. They're also described as crowns. Revelation talks about casting crowns before his feet. I think all of this relates to our capacity to enjoy the very presence of God more than getting treasures to, to, to store up or having more treasures than somebody else. We all get, we get it all. But there seems to be a, a greater degree of capacity. But my point in, 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 in mentioning all of that is to simply say this, that Christ has died. He has secured eternal redemption. But he's also died and he has secured an, an eternal inheritance. That, that will has been activated. It, and all that remains is standing before him. And for those that are in Christ, when you stand before him, it isn't to receive judgment. It's to receive an inheritance. Could you imagine going to... I don't want to go to court, do you? But what if, it, what if you went to court because the world's wealthiest man died and left you an heir to everything? You think you'd enjoy going? <laughs> it would be a blessed hope, wouldn't it? That's the only time I think I'd like to go to court. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father... We're thankful for the blessings that you have granted to us in Christ Jesus. May they be uh, realized in our life to a greater degree. May we call many to come to faith in Christ, to receive the eternal redemption that he has provided and the internal inheritance. And may we know that you truly keep your promises. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment to respond in faith to how Christ has spoken to you today. I'll give you a moment now.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us. You've made many promises. You keep them all. May your name be exalted today and forever. May our trust in you continue. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to stop you because I want to sing Redeemed. And I'm going to mess all you ladies up too, but you all are brilliant. So I'm trusting you. So can we sing that song, I'm Redeemed? What a beautiful song. What number is that? And quit playing great songs during this intermission because it just distracts me. 283? Okay. Y'all want to sing that and sing it out to Christ. Thank him for the redemption that is in Christ, but also think about the inheritance that he has granted you as a child of his. Let's stand together as Blake comes to lead us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.